Welcome back to A Movie and an Argument with Alyssa and Swin. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, the culture critic at Think Progress and a columnist for Slate in the Atlantic. And I'm joined, as always, by... Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin. I'm the Interactive Writing Fellow at the DC Bureau of Mother Jones Magazine, and I'm also their movie guy. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for showing up here um, in our first days in Romney's America. It's yes. It's always a pleasure to... Uh, I know. I'm super excited to start living in a dystopian version of, uh, you know... America, probably The Handmaid's Tale. I'm fully expecting that I'll be shipped off to, you know, be reproductively useful somewhere in the coming days. If you're so lucky. Yes. As long as you do what you're instructed. It's true. But in all seriousness. um, Four more years, people. The two uh, highly anticipated movies we have coming out this week, I think the most entertaining thing I watched all week has got to be the... uh, That'd be election night. That and also it was a far quicker movie than I expected. Yeah, it didn't, I was it didn't drag ex- out. I was expecting it was going to be like a Malachian opus. We were going to be there for a couple of days. You know, but, Danny Strong would get to ne- write another movie about you know recounting <laughs> things. But but no, it was over by eleven twenty pretty much. Ironically enough, it was as short as a Danny Strong HBO movie. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, and with more of Megyn Kelly's legs, which is, we have learned from inside sources at Fox News, are the network's most important asset. They pull very well. It's true. They also do very well when you complain about them in, on blogs, apparently. So <laughs> that's been the highlight of my week. Actually, the highlight, I think, of both of our watching weeks uh, was the new James Bond movie, Skyfall, yes. which is out on Friday. And I think both of us can agree is pretty tremendous. Um. I'm trying to run through the list of expletives I want to use right now to describe how awesome I thought it was, or at least how really good I thought it was. But we're a family program, so I got to watch my tongue. No. Are we a family program? I thought we were like for mature audiences only. It was fucking awesome. Let's yeah. just get real. It was, it was. It was good. It was very good. And uh, tell me, what do you think were the highlights? Why do you think it succeeded so well? So I think um, I tweeted this after getting home from the movie. Um, Skyfall is the cabin of, in the woods of the Bond franchise, and I could have watched it for seven hours. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is that it's a movie that's very explicitly sort of commenting on the Bond franchise, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly. It's to the movie's credit that the explicit callouts um, come across as sort of wry and you know, self-knowing rather than mm. thunderously heavy. Um, I have this theory that you can judge James Bond movies by their t- by their credit sequences, which are always sort of fascinating and exciting. And I don't know if you remember the credit sequence from Casino Royale a couple of years ago. I do. But it's an extremely sort of disciplined sequence where um, Bond is sort of in playing cards and his antagonists are men who are made of cards. You s- shoot them, you stab them. They fall into the suits. Mm. It's um, And it's a very sort of disciplined, you know, through line on the credit sequence. And Skyfall is a much more sort of sprawling movie than Casino Royale. Mm. Um, but it is, I, I mean, I think the debate is whether it's, it's in the neighborhood of as good as Casino Royale. I think people will disagree on whether it's slightly worse as good or better. Um, but again, you have this credit sequence that is totally sprawling, that is aquatic and gothic you have knives deer targets burning uh but it's unbelievably gorgeous and um you know it's you've got sort of the sprawl there you also have i mean i think it's some of the best cinematography in a bond movie i've ever seen oh absolutely and 
lot of that I think is to the credit of the director this time around. Who Sam first Mendes. Sam yeah. Mendes, first time directing a Bond movie. You've probably seen his work with American Beauty, Jarhead, um, Revolutionary Road. Road. So and he's much more of a sort of domestic drama guy. Um, absolutely. And we should probably back up and explain the sort of basics of Skyfall. Yes, you, you go ahead. Um, essentially, Bond, through a variety of means, which we will not spoil here, although how do you spoil a James Bond movie? Spoiler, he lives at the end, bad guys die in between. Exactly. There will be boom. a few spoilers during this broadcast. Um, but mild, we will. Um, so Bond, after going AWOL from... MI6 for a while resurfaces after a cyber attack on headquarters that kills a number of agents and is sort of meant to taunt M. And so he begins investigating by way of uh, Shanghai and Macau uh, sort of who it was that came after the agency and ends up reckoning both with his own sort of past with M and with some of the sort of the larger consequences of sort of blowback from British imperialism as expressed through its human intelligence while at home, mm-hmm. M is uh, going through a series of parliamentary inquiries after uh, the same hacker who launched the cyber attack on MI6 steals a list of British agents undercover in terrorist organizations and begins leaking their names. So you have... On YouTube. No. Yes. So you have both a sort of very deft bureaucratic drama happening in the midst of an exceedingly stylish James Bond movie. And I thought that was just a brilliant bit of innovation. Oh, absolutely. Where a lot of stuff goes boom and they still have time to meditate on James Bond and M aging. Yes. Like a lot of the movie has to do with like uh, creaky hardware that comes with like long used bodies and like foreign espionage. And I, I thought that was great. It didn't seem... Um, forced. It didn't take away from the average, like visceral pow you expect from whatever kind of James Bond movie. It just made things better because you know it, it drops that little like dash of realism into the James Bond movie that we're not used to when we see Connery as great as he was. Like, look, he's an Asian. He's basically Superman. He's James, you know, yeah. James Bond. But he's getting old. Mm, he, his face, you, you see it. The like time has worn. Uh, on the ass kicking. It's... Well, and one thing they do through that that's brilliant is they give you the inverse of a training montage. So Bond resurfaces and has to go through a series of sort of recertifications to be allowed to go back in the field. And so you have this, he's not being taught anything, he's sort of showing what he can do. And the result ends up being that he's really out of shape and out of practice. And I just thought that was an incredibly clever twist on the standard Mm. superhero training montage where a man comes into himself this is a man having very clearly fallen out of himself yeah and when he comes back to the dead to try to like okay like bomb just went off at mi6 i have to do something he comes back from the bahamas or wherever he's hiding out um he looks like a haggard drunk right like again it's all in daniel craig's eyes who delivers another i think pretty wonderful performance and he looks like he's falling apart he looks like an alcoholic from a like domestic violence picture not like a globe-trotting super agent yeah well and one thing i think that the sort of daniel craig bond movies have gotten very well is sort of bond's dry wit um and they've managed i mean bond movies uh, casino royale and Skyfall in particular, are written in these sort of 
very short sentences. I mean, if you'll remember from Casino Royale, um, Vesper Lind asks Bond how his lamb was, mm. and he just replies, skewered. Or you have the opening sequence where he you know, is being told that his second kill is, and he cuts the guy off, shoots him, and then just says, considerably. And, like, so you have all of these extremely short sentences, even sort of one-word sentences, that Bond can then, like, clip in the middle, which is a kind of characteristic thing that Daniel Craig Mm -hmm. does with his speech. And you have, again, a lot of these very short sentences, you know, when he's undergoing his training uh, or his recertification, one of the characters says, oh, well, we can do this later, and just says, let's. And it's, you know, it's meant to be this gesture of control, and then he kind of collapses after everyone else is out of the room. Um, They just have a sense of what Craig's strengths are in an incredible way and are really sort of tailoring the movie to that, and he is just rising wonderfully to the occasion. No, absolutely. Has anybody said this is his last Bond movie? I think he's under contract for two more, although this could have been an excellent breaking point. No, absolutely. Most definitely. And uh, to talk about the director, Sam Mendes, mm. for a second. I've been a fan of his for a long time. Ever yeah. s- like s- American Beauty, I-, I still remember seeing it on an airplane when I was a little kid, like, traveling back from Thailand. And it was probably one of the first, like, R, like hard R-rated mm. movies I'd seen that wasn't, like, a bang-bang-you-die movie that yeah. actually had depth. And for better or for worse, it was one of the first movies that started me off on my path to, like, Loving cinema yeah. as like an art form and not just entertainment. And um, the last Bond movie, which I thought was kind of a disaster, they yeah. got Mark Forster to do it, who did Monsters Ball and other hard, like and right. intricate dramas. And he kind of it didn't work. He he just kept like throwing every single bit of like choreographed action at the screen and kinetic energy to see what stuck. And none of it really did because it didn't sell. It seemed yeah. rushed and sloppy. Here, Mendes, who, like in Road to Perdition, has done like very interesting set pieces of violence I, before. Um, he, I love Road to Perdition so much, and I think same. it's no mistake that, given that he did Road to Perdition, that, that we end up with sort of shotguns and old-fashioned weaponry mm. for and a Daniel substantial Craig was section in, for the movie. Mm, yeah, and Daniel Craig was in Road to Perdition yes. as like a Weasley gangster son, mm-hmm. and. Like, you can see, I'm not sure if they're intentional, but almost recalls to um, Mendez's previous films, like in Jarhead, like the big burning fires in the desert during Operation Desert Storm. And here you kind of get the same imagery when, like, the Skyfall Manor is on fire. Bond is, like, walking away from it. It's this almost hypnotic moment of landscape Mm. before the killing starts up again. And I adored it. I mean, I talked a little bit about the cinematography, but it is so carefully considered. Um... Because you have, you know, you have sort of water imagery in a number of the scenes. You, when Bond goes to Shanghai, you have all of this green and blue light that works together. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you end up having, you know, a sort of climactic sequence in the movie takes place on the Scottish Moors, which again has this sort of blue-green tinge in sort of the frost and the cold. You have, you know, it's just an incredible carry-through on the color um, you have a lot of sort of chess imagery. You have, you know, Bond in a black suit, his antagonist in white. Um, and mm-hmm. then, you know, some reversals there. Um, I and mean, it's just, it's a tremendously good looking movie, which cannot, is not always something that can be said for Bond movies, I think. 
Oh, totally not. I mean, I I try to repress what the Dalton movies looked like. Yeah. Because I have a license to kill. I have a soft spot for license to kill. But you mentioned the antagonist, played by Javier Bardem. Yes. Who is fantastic. I think he... Didn't he win the Oscar? He was at least nominated for Before Night Falls. Mm, yes. He played like a gay poet or mm-hmm. author. And it was brilliant. Um, I think the closest thing I've seen to him as a Bond villain before this movie... Uh, was his, I'm not even sure if he was credited, but his one scene in Michael Mann's Collateral with what Jamie about, Fo- What about No Country for Old Men? That's not really a Bond villain, though. Some, yeah, I guess something more Just, sort of from it, the American imagination. You, right, and far too dark to be a Bond villain. I mean, I mean Bond this, villains char- can, this character is fairly dark, though. That's true, but he has the flamboyance of like a Bond villain. But we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that in yeah. a second and what it um, means. But... He, uh, anyway, I loved him in Collateral and his one scene as like this drug lord with this like really icy, almost like quiet, but fiery menace. And here he, uh, tell me a little bit what you thought about this villain. It's a fascinating role and one that I think doesn't a hundred percent work. And I think some of the places where the movie kind of, the movie I would say has some substantial sort of logical holes in its third act which is i mean end up not mattering that much but Mm -hmm. they're a little bit silly and i'm sure viewers will see them immediately in the movie but he plays uh silver this former mi6 agent who served with uh m in hong kong and effectively has since gone rogue and the character is sort of a riff on julian assange but the movie does something rather clever and suggests I mean, so most movies, the way Hollywood approaches our villains or people who threaten, you know, the British Empire or America is that their grievances are less legitimate in movies than they are in real life. And Silver is someone who has been genuinely damaged by M's actions um, Mm. and sort of strategic thinking. Like his grievances against both her in particular and the British Empire are real. Um, and made in one scene just sort of very viscerally. <laughs> yeah. um, it's one of the grossest scenes in a Bond movie, actually. Um, mm. And again, viewers will know exactly what we're talking about, but the movie is very clear that like this is someone who has been legitimately damaged by M, that she maybe doesn't deserve everything he is sort of doing to her and her organization um, now, but she is certainly guilty. And I think that that is an interesting tack for the movie to mm-hmm. take. And she's guilty because she's playing by the rules of geopolitics, right? I mean, right. she is guilty because the laws of geopolitics should require her to be guilty. Right. And that that's like the main element of psychological warfare that he uses against Bond when he finally gets him to himself um, midway through the movie, saying, I used to be his, her favorite, too. Yeah. And it's like, you think she's being honest to you? You you think you have a special relationship with this mother figure? Yeah. And, you know, he calls her mother... Uh, there's something f- Freudian probably there about Silver's relationship. Well, but I think that it's actually, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the movie, just like on a small stylistic level, mm-hmm. is that they start to make very clear, like M becomes a very, you know, in Casino Royale, M stops Bond before he can say her real name. Mm-hmm. And so this movie doesn't reveal that anymore, but it very clearly it's like M really does stand for mother with her. They make, I mean, I don't know why this had never occurred to me, but they make it clear that Q stands for quartermaster. Mm. You know, they're bringing these sort of abstract, silly concepts 
down into sort of concrete realities in a way that I thought was, I mean, just a tiny thing for the movie to decide to do, but in a way really impressive. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think I give uh, Javier Bardem's silver a little bit more, a little bit more credit than you. Sure. I mean, sure, there, there were some holes, and I thought the final act was a little bit disappointing with, of course, how he demise, his ultimate demise, and how he conducts himself in the last scene, which is mostly, you know, just tossing grenades into a building, which is nice. With a lot of style, though. I that think. is that is true. And his style, I mean, it's... A lot of Bond villains with their flamboyance do have a um, pendants, for lack of a better term, I guess, labeled as somewhat metrosexual and kind of like almost... Well, I think Silver, again, you know, because this is a movie with a lot of doubling, mm -hmm. Silver is sort of a reflection of Bond's sexual omnivorousness, right? I mean... Um, there's this, he's presented as sort of fae. I think that it's going to be a portrayal that some people take issue with, and I think that's... Or we'll just say is gay. Right. Or bisexual, which I've already seen it labeled. Right. But I think people, I think people may read it as a bit of a stereotype. Um, Yeah. But it's, I mean, and I'm not sure the way that that reflects back onto Bond is like as committed as I kind of wish they had been. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but... I mean, Bardem is very good. Um, I'm, I, it's a performance I'm having a hard time getting my head around because there's so much to it. Right. Like, he delivers the best monologues in the movie. Like, yeah. it, it, And they're legitimately good monologues. Oh, I yeah, mean, In absolutely. a movie summer where we've had a lot of sort of mediocre monologues, most notably Bane's, which was just abominably written in Batman, um, you know, the, the speeches here are really good. Mm. Just, you know... The writing is very tailored to the characters. Absolutely. And he, uh, what was it? Sorry, I, I blanked out for a second. <laughs> well, I also wanted to talk about um, the women of the Bond mm-hmm. franchise. And I thought one place that Casino Royale was an enormous step forward and that Quantum of Solace was a substantial step back and that um, uh, Skyfall has basically gotten back on the right track was sort of the way bond, women exist in the Bond universe, you know, in the, um, in Casino Royale, we're intru- you know, we're sort of reintroduced to M as this person with, you know, a really intimate bond to Bond. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just a real sort of, there's a, there's a depth to that relationship. And then Vesper Lind is, you know, a genuinely worthy partner to Bond in a lot of ways. When, you know, when she dies after betraying him and, M asks him how he is. Bond has this great, again, curt line. The job's done. The bitch is dead. And it's a line that, rather than coming across as callous, is sort of a, I am in agony and can't actually say this line. Mm-hmm. And in um, in Skyfall, we've got sort of three substantial female characters. We have M again, who gets an enormous amount of screen time, probably more than in any prior Bond movie, and often without Bond in the frame. Right. Um, we have a young woman whose name is not revealed until the one of the final scenes in the movie, um, but who is both, you know, an extremely skilled field agent who gets to do a lot of um, really great driving in the initial chase sequence, which I thought was sort of a clever way to not have her be like, you know, sort of a, a faux equal physical combatant to mm. a male antagonist, but, you know, just great stunt dri- driving who ends up sort of working with Bond in a number of junctures in the movie. Played by... 
uh, Naomi Harris. Yeah, it was great. Absolutely slick performance. She uh, and and then, the opening sequence. Uh, I mean, this is revealed in the trailer, so it's not much of a spoiler. But she is the one who shoots Bond, thus making everybody think she's dead because M orders take the shot, trying to shoot like a, a terrorist. A terrorist. Yeah, They're on pursuit. Yeah. And uh, she sends him flying off of a train. And then from then on, that it's almost as if that's where their relationship begins in yes. the movie. When they see, and, and it's it, it's a beautiful and really almost seductive um, relationship they have with each other and the way it unfolds. Because every moment they're speaking, you, you can tell Bond has it in his mind. Oh, you're the woman who almost killed me. But they're playful with it. And it's... Well, it's, it's sophisticatedly also, cute. It's almost. the rare movie. It's the rare relationship where Bond seems more sexually interested in a woman than she is in him, mm-hmm. and she sort of plays around with that affection. Um, yeah. And I, I found that to be a really fun element of the movie, where she's just not, you know, she's not, she's not falling for any of his bullshit. <laughs> right. She she kicks ass even when she's not dealing with henchmen. Yes. Like it, it, her best moments are in her slightest ways when she kind of like cocks her head at bond and you can tell she's reeling she's, him in but and she's, she's irritated with him a bunch of the time you yeah. know she's annoyed <laughs> he's troublesome um it's a really it's a fun relationship and a fine performance by harris who hopefully will get some work out of it um it's also it's i mean everything about her character is just set up really well like when you see her in um the initial sequence you know you see her she's wearing like Basically cigarette pants, but that are, like, practical. A khaki jacket. She's got, like, little gold stud earrings. Mm-hmm. Like, just down to the style choices. It's, like, her. It's a reasonable-sized gun. Like, the character just feels immediately realized and sort of given at least some of the attention that they get to making Bond look good and coherent. And I, just, I thought they did a really nice job with her. Um, and then the third woman, um, Severine, uh, is a character I had more issues with. Um, she is a woman that Bond meets at a casino in Macau. Um, and to a certain extent, she's like kind of a dragon lady stereotype mm. with much more vulnerability. Um, and one real problem I had, um, again, this is sort of a minor spoiler, so plug your ears for 30 seconds, is that Bond figures out that she's a sex trafficking victim. Like, she basically was sold into prostitution when she was 12. Mm -hmm. And then, like, just, like, walks into her shower when she doesn't know he's there. And I thought it was the rare moment of, like, a movie just sort of getting something, being, like, a little emotionally gross, right? Because, like, having Bond in just, like, full seduction mode, like, meander into a shower, be like, hi, here's me and my penis, just felt really sort of off to me. Like, that seemed a little... It, st- it stood out to me, and it was not, for me, the fun, like, you know, like, sexy Bond kind mm. of thing. You know, I mean, because, again, in Casino Royale, you have Ava Green witness these killings, and Bond, and you find her, like, in the shower, in this ball gown, freaking out, and Bond just sits there and holds her, mm. right? Like, he does the right thing. He doesn't sort of question, like, the circumstance. He's just sort of with her in her trauma, and I thought it was one of the most sort of emotionally touching sequences in a Bond movie ever. And also just one of the rare sort of action movie sequences of someone respecting the trauma of killing. And it was mm. weird to me to sort of see that thrown out the window with this person who's been like really clearly brutalized. No, I, I, I definitely get that point. But 
I guess uh, the one reason I didn't react so harshly to it was because I wasn't actually sure that she didn't know he was there because she had told him where to meet her. And it's not, it, the scene doesn't make it immediately clear that he wasn't a stowaway without her knowledge. Mm. Like she. Oh, I didn't read it that way because she has the two glasses out. She has two glasses of champagne out. Her ship's captain tells her it's time for us to cast off. And she looks clearly disappointed. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I, I read her. She looked nervous because you sh- I hope you don't find the white British man I'm hiding in the closet or wherever he is. But again, there's no way I can ever oh, know yeah. unless. It's, yeah. And... I couldn't entirely tell. But yeah, it just didn't quite. Mm. Uh, and I also, you know, I mean, in Casino Royale, Vesper Lynn sort of goes to her death knowingly she is sort of she is an active character who makes more active decisions and severine's character is passive in some substantial ways right and again a bit of a spoiler the way she dies the way she brutally goes is uh she's because a woman always has to die in a bond movie a a woman bond has sex with then dies It's, it's like a cheesy horror movie but a little bit more class um she's tied up by silver yeah javier bredem's Silver and they have like little um it's basically uh, a target yeah, yeah target hitting with uh two like old timey pistols like shoot make the um shot glass full yeah. of whiskey or bourbon or whatever it is fall off her head and it's it's a really sad tensely shot and staged sequence it's also that... super weird like for these are fairly you know this it, iteration of bond movies has been sort of quite visually realistic Mm -hmm. and it's this great visually strange set piece it's Um, in the middle of something that looks like a coliseum right i sort of thought of old coliseum the thing that i have in my notes is that it looks like the um sort of island setting in inception huh i hadn't thought about that but it's totally right isn't it i'll give you points for that absolutely and I don't know. The thing I liked about this one is much like in Casino Royale, which I thought one of the best scenes was like the half black and white or the black and white sequence at the beginning yeah. where it's basically just Bond dealing mano a mano with two different guys in like yeah. in two sequence. totally different ways. Right. It's this movie. Sam Mendes does a good job of making, in my opinion, the best moments, the small moments where there is the violence of men or agents or whoever going against each other but it's contained in small moments like it's one and one it's not the best moments aren't when huge things go boom in like gigantic ways but so that's more of a credit to the movie than a dig because let's get real there are a lot of big moments motorcycle chases across like the um roofs of istanbul and Which, by the way is done better than either in taken two or in the international oh absolutely like just and it's also just a detailed thing. Stuff. I mean, everyone at this point will have seen the scene from the trailer where the back of a train rips off. Uh, Bond and sort of, like, falls forward into the car and then adjusts his, cu- like, shoots his cuffs. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so <laughs> badass. Bond. Really cool. He gets yeah. it right. It doesn't seem cheesy at all. And uh, towards the end, as Silver and his henchmen are about to assault and, like, basically bomb and shoot the hell out of Bond's last fortress in the movie, always he the blasting... Um, Boom, boom, by the animals, which is one of my favorite, like, British invasion songs, yeah. as this gigantic Gatlin gun fitted helicopter comes in for the kill and starts, like, shooting the hell out of the building as John, like, yeah. Bond, like, futilely shoots back with his, like, Uzi or whatever he has. And it's just these, like, big epic moments that 
Sam Mendes, the director of American Beauty, pulls off like he's an intellectual, um, not shitty Joel Schumacher. And it's a, it's a really intellectual movie. I mean, yeah. you literally have Bond meet Q at an art gallery where they're s- sitting side by side and looking at a painting of a steamer pulling away a sailing ship. And they sort of talk about, you know, and it's an obvious sort of Bond is the old ship, Q is the steamer. And Q is a young guy now. We right. have to explain. It's been wi- the marvelous Ben Wishaw, who I just adore in everything. You, um, you liked him in Cloud Atlas. I right? love him in Cloud Atlas. I love him in The Hour. He's just, he's amazing and I'm not there. Um, uh, but, and so you have that moment and then there is a final shot in the movie where, again, I won't spoil it. But two men frame a painting that's just tall ships. Like, the the steamer is gone. I mean, it's a crazy intellectual movie. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, there's just, I'm going to see it again this weekend. But there is so much there. And it's just tremendously enjoyable mm-hmm. to watch. Um, and again, something else I don't want to spoil for people. Because we've spoiled enough today. Um, I think two words... What's one word you'll walk away from and everybody will be talking about this movie. And again, it's credit to the cinematography just as much as to the like brutalizing in the movie jellyfish. Yeah. And you just remember that word jellyfish. You'll know what I'm talking about after you see the movie. And you'll you'll recognize it immediately. And and you'll thank me for uh, having you focus on it. Although I'm sure you didn't need any help anyway, because it's one of the more striking like single shots of the movie. Unbelievable. Okay. We, we've, spilled enough about it it's a fight sequence where <laughs> it's a fist fight with james bond and like an assassin or henchman and it's just this one shot where the camera slowly zooms in as they're fighting on well, like, and one they're of the in a building in shanghai where jellyfish are being projected and for so, no reason but it's beautiful and so they're just <laughs> fighting in silhouette but you can tell who's who in the fight the entire time mm. and it's it's unbelievable. It's just a great piece of sort of kabuki theater. Yeah, I, I took a it's like get, shadow puppets. It's great. It's just like you don't expect that. I mean, at this point, we should expect to have a Bond movie because they've done everything they can to say, look, Daniel Craig era Bond. You can think of it as art house Bond. Yeah. But still with a lot of shit that goes kapow. Right. But, well, it's a I mean, this movie is really and I think people who like art house movies will resist this. It really is, you know, much in the same way that we talk about how artificial the distinction between like genre genre fiction and literature is this is a bond movie that has as its animating purpose the idea that the blockbuster and art house are not each other's enemies no absolutely and are you buying that uh the comparisons i'm not sure if some people are making it, but i'm sure they will between this and the dark knight like this is the bond franchise is the dark knight not just in um mood and hopefully intellectual innovation but the fact that there are quite a few narrative parallels, like Silver as the Joker, mm, even the way I mean, that he captures, escapes, and orchestra. I think it's a more con- sort of... I think it's a much more directly metaphor. I think it's a movie that is much more directly about what's going on in the world, even though it's like it's a more fantastical scenario. As was The Dark Knight. In the, no, but Bush I think this is, like, this is just like very straight up. I mean... That had the, like, ooh, surveillance, it's not so great. And, like, the Joker's kind of a terrorist. This is straight up, imp- like, blowback to imperialism. Right. I mean, and it's literally, you know, it's about 
you know, hacking in China and, you know, and this is all text. It's not implied. It's straight up like bad things went down during the handover of Hong Kong that, mm. you know, are like the way we've infiltrated terrorist cells is dangerous that, you know, it's like it's got sort of Stuxnet elements of cybercrime. It's I mean, it's very directly yeah. drawn from the events of the day in I've, a way in a way that I would give it more credit for than I extend to the Dark Knight because I think that ultimately Christopher Nolan is kind of a political dilettante. Yeah, I may disagree with that slightly, but I will say, yeah, uh, Javier Bardem is basically anonymous but with better, sleeker, shinier hair. Uh, such good clothes. Oh, such God, amazing clothes. clothes. Like, it's a Bond movie. All points for style of the sexy but deadly Oh, villain. which is to say... Run, don't walk. Skyfall is fantastic. Yeah, um, and there's a line earlier in the movie where uh, Daniel Craig's Bond asks him, so that's it. We're all spent out, or we're all done. Um, again, commenting on the whole aging stuff right. we were talking about well, before. Well, and also the sort of the franchise and everything else. Right, and no, it's not. I mean, it's... Not. I. I'm happy that it was almost two and a half hours long, but as you said, I could watch it for seven hours. I did actually wish it was longer, particularly towards the end, which I thought... Put it out a little bit, particularly with Silver's, the way they killed off Silver, but whatever. I actually was... really like that, but we can, just, we can talk about Maybe we should just do a spoiler edition of the podcast. And... Absolutely. Or we'll take it to print, and we'll yes. argue about there. But um, it makes me want to see the franchise extended, which is something I cannot say after um, Quantum of Solace. Yeah. They found their way back. And I just think, you know... Even though Quantum of Solace, I mean, those are the writer's strike. There were circumstances of why it was bad. I but think. it's, yeah. It still sucked. All of which to say, go see Skyfall. It's fantastic. Um, And now, from last week, um, we have a tape discussion of the other great movie that's coming. Well, Well, not great. Highly anticipated. Highly anticipated. uh, Movie coming out on Friday. um, Steven Spielberg, Daniel Day-Lewis, Tony Kushner, Lincoln. That is decidedly not sophisticated and modern in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, uh, which I think you liked less than I did. Um. Well, first, tell me what you thought about it, then we'll gauge, because I think we had a similar pseudo-disdain for it. So I think that Lincoln would have been better if it was either bigger or smaller. As it is right now, the core of the movie is the January fight in 1865 to get the 13th Amendment passed in the House of Representatives. This is actually a really smart frame. It lets us meet a lot of the um, sort of main characters. Um, It also ends up being a story sort of about the rise of lobbying. Um, and it's, you know, it's a time where it's very smart about sort of the moral compromises and factions involved in passing the amendment. Uh, and I think that if you had made a movie that is narrowly focused on that fight and in particular on Thaddeus Stevens, who's as played by Tommy Lee Jones is just totally wonderful. So fantastic. Right. I mean, if you'd made Thaddeus, that would have been a great movie. That said, um, this is told from Lincoln's perspective. So you have the sort of added complications of uh, Lincoln's wife, who um, is still grieving the death of their middle son. Um, You know, his sort of, you know, apocalyptic dreams about the future of the company, his relation of the country, his relationship with Grant. And the movie sort of balloons out, but gives us only sort of Lincoln as hagiography instead of Lincoln as actual man. And so I think if the movie had been either a half hour longer or 45 minutes shorter, uh, it might have been a stronger movie. But as it is, watching Lincoln like tell stories and stand up for things and be a saint 
and you know it's just is not actually terribly interesting to me i love tony kushner who wrote the script and things like this opening dream sequence are really sort of wonderful and evocative um and you know sort of capture a time out of mind in a way that few movies i've seen do there just isn't nearly enough of that daniel day lewis does a fabulous lincoln impression but it's an impression rather than a full person right and just to yeah i think we feel similarly about but for me uh one of the biggest hits is of course is well this is a lincoln movie the expectations are set to like the highest you can set i mean what you have a biopic in your or a movie and you're going to try to tackle any character in history or American history. I mean, Lincoln is about as insurmountable a challenge yeah. as you can get. So I wouldn't really say that this is a big letdown in expectations because my expectations would always be too high for any movie yeah. titled Lincoln. Lincoln. But I got to say, for something directed, something helmed by Steven Spielberg, for all his flaws, he's done Schindler's List. He's done Saving Private Ryan. He's got it some mojo. I mean, we all know that. Let's just forget about the Indiana Jones movie that... Well, we, we're not going to talk about here. Considering it's helmed by him, considering it's starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Tommy Lee Jones, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, an incredible cast. David Strathairn absolutely. You know, as the Secretary of State Seward, who is wonderful. I mean, it's Written, a movie that has, like, John Hawks and James Spader playing, like, mysterious men from Albany who basically mm-hmm. come to Washington to just bribe wavering Democrats. Absolutely. I mean, and it's, they, you know, the actors of that caliber in these itty-bitty roles, it's... Yeah. And they do a great job. They're a bunch of pocket-sized scene-stealers in performances. And I think you and I agree on that, that the performances in this movie are universally, or almost universally, great. Yeah. Like, fantastic acting. But for all of this juice, there's so little squeeze in the film. Like, there, there's, it's this, supposed to be this Lincoln epic, but there's never this feeling of the sweeping emotional or cinematic scope no. that you should get with a movie like this. The whole thing feels like terribly small and a complete almost meandering waste of time the whole time when it feels like it has purpose it pulls back and i think that's like shown the most when it's uh focusing on like stevens played by tommy lee jones because i I agree with you if this were the thaddeus stevens show it would be a much better movie it would be tighter i mean the problem the problem now is that it's baggy right it doesn't quite fill up the epic promise nor is it willing to focus on sort of a tight, right. tense legislative fight story that is the best thing about the movie? And the best thing about the movie, Tommy Lee Jones being a complete badass, with, like the Democrat-hating, like slavery-loathing Thaddeus Stevens, is that he is the... By no measure does he not upstage Daniel Day-Lewis's Lincoln. Yeah. And the best parts... The best parts of the movie Lincoln have nothing to do with our greatest president. Right. At all. I mean, the, the best scene in the movie he's not even in. When Thaddeus Stevens is, like, on the floor about to make a compromise on, like, to get the 13th Amendment through. And another thing that I wanted to get your read on was the presentation of Lincoln and the depiction of him by both by Spielberg, Kushner, and, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis, sure. where, they, at least to me, it seemed like they were dedicated to presenting Abraham Lincoln as this really cuddly, like, slavery-quashing man. This, like, uh, so thinly sketched that... And obviously neither of us are saying that Abraham Lincoln wasn't a great president. I'd right. say he is our or greatest even a, Or even a great man. Right, exactly. But 
the fact that they approach him with kids' gloves, I think, makes it an intensely less great movie. Well, it's less interesting. It, yeah, less I mean, interesting than it could have been. You know, I mean, I mean, and there are part of what's frustrating about it is that it gestures at the movie it could have been a lot of the time. I mean, there's this scene where Lincoln sort of ends up stopped on the steps of the White House with his wife's maid, um, who was a slave um, and has since been freed. And she asks him, you know, sort of how you how he feels about living among free black men and women. And he just sort of said, you know, he says, I don't know you very well. I don't know any of you very well. And, you know, there's a really there is an interesting story to be told about the fact that Abraham Lincoln, for all, you know, as enlightened as he was, was still kind of a racist. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it was hard. You know, part of what makes Stevens remarkable is that he believed in racial equality, not just legal equality, a distinction that becomes sort of important in that pivotal scene that you mentioned in the movie. But, you know, the scene, like, every time you see Lincoln in a moment of tension, the movie gives him a way out. Mm-hmm. You know, he gives this sort of moving speech to the maid instead of actually sort of drawing out those tensions. Or it has an advisor rationalizing what he's doing politically. Right. Or he has an argument with his wife, um, played by Sally Field, who's quite good, I think. Mm-hmm. Um that, of course, is set to thunder and lightning and, you know, involves her mentioning that, um, you know, he threatened to have her committed to a madhouse, which, again, is a true thing that happened. She, you know, suffered from severe depression uh, after um, their son Willie died. Um, and instead of, you know, him sort of doubling down or us seeing, you know, sort of the fear or misery of that marriage... He, of course, immediately de-escalates and it's like, oh, well, I was grieving and couldn't deal with it in you. I mean, there's just always an emotional out for the guy. And it's a much less interesting movie than to actually see him be flawed at times. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And you're right. He keeps dropping hints at these flaws, which would really be so interesting and dramatic to examine and make it. Well, it's a movie that I think doesn't get at all at his depression, which was quite severe. Right. There's that. And also, like in one of the earlier scenes in the movie, one member of the um, uh, Jeffersonian Democratic opposition, he's talking about how this tyrant, Abraham Lincoln, who um, squashed freedom of the press, like suspended habeas corpus, like... It's a movie that's very comfortable with, with radical seizures of presidential power. Right, right. And it... It mentions, like, the habeas corpus stuff, the squashing of the free press stuff for, like, a second. And doesn't bring it up again. It's one of the most interesting parts of the Lincoln presidency. And the seizures of executive power that Lincoln goes through in the movie um, that are within the time frame, the the relatively short time frame that the movie covers, um, it doesn't show you any glimpses of darkness into it. it. It makes it a very sunny, almost, oh, look at how conniving and genius and cute they're being by right. circumventing the se- all the these... seizures of power are you know we're fine because president lincoln is doing it right you know and that's that's not actually an argument you know right and i mean that when they're the time frame that the movie is in like the war is still going on and there's still stuff to be examined about the moral cost it must have took to a good man like lincoln to wage a war as brutally as he did in, in the south and yet the only scene that we see of him having anything to do with deserting soldiers was signing pardons and the movie says nothing about the many many death warrants he signed yep. for deserting I mean, soldiers i mean it's just more there's examples sort of, there's sort of this one line him and grant sitting you know on a building steps and you know he says you know we we've helped each other to do terrible things but you know 
the idea the idea is sort of that oh he has this overdeveloped conscious conscience they can't have been really that terrible they were pretty terrible yeah and i mean i mean i'm not argue about whether they were necessary but there's no denying that they were terrible right and i think some people might if they're listening to this accuse us of nitpicking it's like oh a one movie about not all of the lincoln presidency but only part of it can't fit in everything like but it's a but these are important well, and it's a cake-and-eat-it-too structure, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's not just narrowly about the legislative fight. It's that, and then sort of several months after, it's, you know, because right. of that bagginess, when the extra stuff that you add around your core plot is all hagiography and no examination, that's worth critiquing in a movie. Oh, no, ab- absolutely. And it makes it... It just... It's such a dull, almost one-dimensionally good character that Daniel Day-Lewis is playing, and it's just not that intriguing. I mean, there's a lot to be said of such a towering force that was Abraham Lincoln, both good and bad, and it's kind of like, I don't know, at best sometimes, like, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln presented itself like a Lifetime or Hallmark movie to me with more bayonetting and more David Strathorn yelling. Like, I just... Swin, have you seen Primary Colors? Yes, yes, I have. So Primary Colors is one of my favorite political movies, and I think it actually could have offered lessons for this movie because mm. it starts out in the same way with this character who is charming and sunny and empathetic and then systematically deconstructs that sort of public persona mm-hmm. um, and does a fantastic job of it. It's a dark, weird, great movie. Oh, and very funny, too. Yeah. Oh, incredibly funny. Um, and I think, you know... Abraham Lincoln's darkness is not as dark as, you know, Bill Clinton's personal sexual weaknesses or whatever, but you could have done a movie that Oh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, but you could have done a movie that had a similar structure that starts out sort of cuddly and funny and intensifies as the stakes intensify, and that really examines sort of what it means Mm -hmm. to believe in someone. I mean, I think that's an interesting question, and... You know, that a movie with John Travolta hamming it up as Bill Clinton does it better than, you know... Steven Spielberg and Daniel Day-Lewis says something about the quality of Lincoln. And I feel bad saying this because there's so many individual scenes and moments and performances in Lincoln that I like, but as a whole, the movie doesn't really work. Yes, completely agreed. Like, the... What would be the highlight scene to you? Mm. What jumps out immediately? I mean, I think... It's it's buried in a lot of nonsense. Right, I would say maybe sort of the final scene in the house, you know... Mm. um, and, I mean, God, there are all these little things, right? There's Walton Goggins as a um, Democrat who's lost his seat, who Hawks and Spader target for a bribe, mm-hmm. and who's very, very, very anxious about <laughs> voting for the amendment um, after he's been offered this job as postmaster of this town. And you see Goggins' sort of buggy eyes as they get to him on the roll, as, you know, I'm voting yes. God damn it. Go ahead and shoot me. I'm voting yes. I mean, just, you know, that's a scene that has all of these great little moments that ends with Tommy Lee Jones as Stevens just sort of quiet because he's so overpowered by the emotion. I mean, that's just a great set piece. But, you know, even individual things like Stevens and Mrs. Lincoln meeting at a party and sort of getting into it over the fact that he investigated her household expenditures. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, come on, Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones, sort of two of the great actors of their roughly contemporaneous generation, just sort of going at it over something as petty and funny as that. I mean, that's some great acting. Yeah, definitely. And what makes it more tra- tragic for me is those small moments just remind me com- 
constantly of the missed opportunities. Yeah. Like the myriad missed opportunities that came with this movie. I mean, it's a Lincoln movie. You get yeah. the right director, you get the right writer, you have something beautiful. But mm-hmm. I I just can't, couldn't get over how decidedly limp and bland yeah. everything except well, for the acting felt about this movie. And it's also just... I mean, the cinematography is so self-indulgent. I mean, you literally have a shot of sort of a candle flickering and Lincoln's face emerging from it and cutting to, you know, with the inaugural dress. It's just, really? Really? We have to do that? Really? It's, it's emotional manipulation without any emotional core. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't believe... If you're going to try to emotionally... Mal- manipulate me at least have like more melodrama there yeah don't do it with silence or right. near silence no and i mean again you know in favor of the like this being thaddeus instead of lincoln you have this great moment when it's sort of clear why stevens sort of is who he is and believes what he believes and you know it's something that i think could have been developed more in the movie but that just totally hit home for me it's a great you know I, we won't spoil it for readers but it's it's a great scene mm-hmm. spoiler lincoln dies at the end 